Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Britain isn't working well for many of us right now. The cost of energy, housing and food are too high, while decent jobs with real prospects are hard to come by. Those aren't my words, but the clarion call of a new campaign group that aims to get Britain building again. Britain Remade starts from the conviction that Britain has been a great hub of industry and science in the past, And there's no reason we shouldn't be in the future, provided we have the right policies in place. That agenda is very much the same one that animates both CAPEX and our parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies. So we are very happy to have one of the campaign's founders, Sam Richards, on the podcast this week. Sam's a former director of the Conservative Environment Network, and before launching Britain Remade, worked as a special advisor in 10 Downing Street, focusing on energy and environment. I began by asking him to give me the elevator pitch for Britain Remade and just what he and his colleagues are trying to achieve. Sam, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. We've got plenty to talk about your new campaign organisation, Britain Remade, uh, launched recently with a pretty kind of broad uh, ambit to kind of get Britain moving again. Just for our listeners' um, benefit, what is the kind of elevator pitch? For Britain Remade, what are you what are you trying to do with this organisation? So thanks so much for having me on. So Britain Remade is a new campaign group for economic growth. We think that Britain is a great country. It's the country that built the world's first commercial nuclear power plant, built the world's first coal-fired power station, built the world's first railway. But unfortunately, we've stopped building, and that failure to build is making us all poorer. You may have seen in some of our initial literature that you know, we've put out this, this stat that the typical British family is now poorer than the typical American family, poorer than the typical German family, and on current growth trends, by the end of this decade, will be poorer than the typical Polish family. Now, The central idea of Britain Remade is we don't think it has to be this way. We think that there are levers that we can pull, and we actually think that there is a broad coalition of voters who would be supportive of a government that looked to pull those levers. Unfortunately, 
ministers and MPs often hear from those voters who don't want things to get built, who don't want new homes built in their area, who don't want a new wind farm going up, who don't want a new train line going through their patch. And they hear less from those voters who are desperate for economic change, uh, but are too busy going on with their lives to write in in, in support of a, of a new project. So the hope with Britain Remade is that we can provide a voice for, as I say, what we think are genuinely millions of, of voters uh, and thereby change some of the political incentives for MPs and ministers unlocking some of those pro-growth policies. Yeah, we'll get on to some of the policy stuff, um, you know, throughout the podcast. I just want to talk about the nuts and bolts of campaigning, though. Mm. What does your campaign involve doing? Who, Which sorts of decision makers are you trying to reach? How are you trying to reach them? What are the challenges in terms of actually getting yourself heard? Mm. So there's lots of good work already going on by organisations like the CPS and others yeah, uh, yeah. Doing, <laughs> doing lots of the sensible, uh, serious uh, policy analysis. And, and we will also be doing policy analysis as well. But the idea behind Britain Remade is that, as I say, if you can build this, this grassroots movement uh, in support of pro-growth policies, be they building new homes, new railway links, new uh, onshore wind farms, uh, then that can then change the political incentives for, for ministers. So, as I say, what we're doing is, um, rather than focused, focusing is, as many traditional kind of Westminster think tanks do on Westminster, uh, we're out uh, in the rest of the country. So last week, uh, I was up at, not even last week, yesterday, um, I was on Teesside uh, meeting uh, Mayor Ben Houchen, other local local businesses, uh, visiting the Teesworks site there and kind of hearing from businesses the challenges that they're facing to growth um, and also talking to, to local residents about our campaign. And we're running this series of regional launches. We've been in the northeast and we launched originally in Yorkshire, where I'm from. Uh, we're going to the northwest next and then the West Midlands after that. Uh, and then the hope is is that by uh, launching in these different parts of the country, getting the views of business, getting what people's only concerns are, we can then sort of pull that together as this, as this campaign movement to then influence both parties, because we're a cross-party campaign, uh, both parties uh, over the coming year and certainly the year after in the run-up to the election. Okay, so I talked uh, in the lead-in about how you have a sl- quite a broad kind of ambit. And mm. what does success look like for you? I think ultimately um, success looks like both major parties going into the next general election with a clear set of pro-growth policies having been influenced by Britain Remade supporters over the next 18 months. Um, And I don't think that we're actually too far off this. I think what's been interesting in recent months is that you've seen this growing cross-party determination to focus on growth. So, obviously, the Justice government talks a lot about growth, but then uh, Rishi has made it one of his top five priorities, and Keir Starmer uh, not only focused on it in his conference speech, but then in his New Year's speech, talked specifically about some of the challenges uh, uh, that we're facing on planning, and said that he wanted to run towards... Uh, issues around planning. So I think this is what's, what's heartening, um, but I, th- I think we've still got a job to do to make sure that both parties are in a, in a good place at the next election. 
Right. So I mean, let's talk about some of the challenges that we, you mentioned. You said very broadly, we don't build enough stuff. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that for that is the planning rules that you uh, just mentioned. But even when you can get permission to build, it's extraordinarily expensive as well, which mm-hmm. is a deterrent. So, I mean, why is it? Why is it so expensive in Britain? Why is HS2, I think it's 10 times more expensive than Spanish high-speed rail? Why mm-hmm. is Crossrail, why does it cost 18 billion to do Crossrail and 4 billion to do the Madrid Metro? Um, the Trans-Pennine upgrade, I think it was... Th- meant to cost 300 million and now the budget's 10 billion which i find quite bizarre mm. i mean what is going on here there may be different things for different projects but is there a theme here so some of this comes from we think some of this comes from the the goal plating of projects so if you go around you know any of the crossrail stations they are these incredible cathedrals but it is probably the case that it could have been done faster and it could have been done at a lower cost if they had been done in a modular way, as the Spanish metro that you referred to was, where you have one, you have a design for a station and then you repeat that again and again. Mm. Um, so I think that there's something around the goal plating of them. There is also a point where cost and delay interact, right? And so... Uh, If you look at, say, for example, the time it takes to build out offshore wind farms, now, building an offshore wind farm, actually constructing the thing, takes two years, three years tops. Yeah. The the full process at the moment, from conception, development, deployment, takes up to 13 years, despite the fact that building the thing takes, takes two or three. And the reason for this is the environmental impact assessment rules, which can take four years, they're consenting again four years, and then projects being stuck in legal challenges. And all of this process adds cost as developers have to redo plan, update assessments. So there's there's both the additional, there's a delay to the projects and then additional cost that comes from the planning rules. Is it the case that, and I don't want to sound too tinfoil hat here, but that there are sort of vested interests in whose interest it is to prolong that process because they're getting fees and various things? Um, I think that the real tragedy of uh, the current planning system is that it isn't really serving anyone's interests. So we have... Uh, we England is one of the most nature-depleted countries on the planet. Uh, uh, and if you look at any indicator... Uh, for biodiversity, from insect life to to bird life, it has been in decline over the last 50 years. So our system, the patchwork framework model of environmental impact assessments, habitat regulations that have evolved over recent decades, is not working to protect the environment. It's not working to protect nature. But at the same time, it is making building anything incredibly slow, incredibly expensive. So... You've, we've we've somehow ended up with a planning system that is the worst of all worlds that fails to protect the environment and also holds up the the building of new infrastructure that we desperately need. We think it's got to be possible to devise a new, simpler, more straightforward system that allows you that allows developers to unlock land more quickly and then, with the proceeds from that pour funds directly into the restoration of nature rather than going through these tick box exercises that uh, environmental impact assessments currently all too often are. When we talk about planning, often it's used as a byword for just housing. Mm. Um, But I I get the sense you mean it in a much broader sense. You're talking about wind and stuff like that. Can we have a kind of one-size-fits-all 
planning system in that way? Um, I'm not sure about a one-size-fits-all uh, planning system in that way. But, I mean, you're, you're right to say that um, the, pl- the problems in the planning system go far beyond housing. I mean, look, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, I uh, subscribe to the housing theory of everything, um, copyright Bowman, Southwood Myers et al. Sorry, uh, the, yeah, this is, for anyone who doesn't know, the housing theory of everything is basically that housing is at the root of pretty much all our economic problems. Right. That's basically it. So, right. And, and indeed, and indeed, I know that Rob Koval has written about this a lot as well. Um, uh, so unlocking more houses is crucially important and is, is a, a crucial uh, example of failure from the planning system, but it's not the only one. As I say, the fact it takes 13 years to build an offshore wind farm, the fact that we haven't built a new nuclear power station for 27 years. Yeah, res- uh, reservoirs is another one. I think it's 32 years since right. we had a new reservoir. So. Right, right. Yeah. All of this, all of this is to do with our broken planning system. Okay, so you mentioned wind there. I mean, it's quite striking that you, even offshore, where there aren't going to be the only NIMBYs are going to be cormorants or whatever, <laughs> you still can't get it built, mm. which is due to, I, I mean, perhaps we can talk about a bit more kind of generalised sclerosis in way thing, the way things get done. I just want to talk about onshore because your colleague, um, Sam Dimitri, has written a very good piece this week on his Substack. do go and read it, um, about the failures in onshore wind. And what's striking here is that it's actually very popular among local people when you poll it, particularly if you offer them discounts on their bills. Mm. But the stats here are really alarming, I mean, in terms of how little is getting built. That's right. We have built, in England, two small turbines over the last three years. Uh, And if you compare the amount that we have built uh, in, in the UK as a whole... Uh, where we have built some in Scotland because they don't have the ban that exists in England. So we have uh, built enough turbines to power a city, but with all the homes but not the businesses, around the size of of Nottingham. If you compare that with what's happened in uh, in France, in Germany, in the US over the same time period, in the US where they've built enough onshore wind to power 22 million homes in the same time period, then you see that we're getting left behind. And it's madness. It is the cheapest source of power going at a time at which people's energy bills are through the roof. We simply can't afford to ban a a cheap source of, of electricity. And the rejoinders to that often you hear is that it's only cheap because of you know, government intervention subsidies. Is that any more the case? I mean, what's the situation here? No, it's no longer the case. It certainly was the case 20 years ago. Um, and part of the reason why the cost curve has come down is a result of those initial interventions. But no, it is now the case that onshore wind is, I mean, depending on the spot price of gas, but it is at least twice as cheap as, as burning gas and potentially much cheaper. And it certainly was much cheaper over recent months when the gas price was significantly yeah. higher. Um, no, new onshore wind comes in at around just over £40 a megawatt hour, which is significantly below the kind of wholesale cost of, of electricity. Yeah, I mean, speaking, you mentioned uh, subsidies there that the, the British government did put in several decades ago, we're now seeing a kind of new wave of subsidies with the Americans, the slightly confusingly named Inflation Reduction Act, which Mm. includes all sorts of things, but one of which is a massive subsidy for green uh, energy. And obviously China has been doing this for years, its solar industry in particular. How does a country like Britain 
compete. We're never going to match the level mm. of funding that those bigger countries can can offer. So what what do we do instead? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to sound like a one-trick pony here, but um, uh, you're absolutely right that we can't seek to outspend the Americans, uh, and I don't think we can seek to out, uh, outspend the Chinese. But um, the scale of investment from the Americans where trillions of dollars uh, will be spent in both public and private investment in new sources of clean energy. From China, who last year added more renewable capacity, more wind and solar power than the entire UK grid, so wind and fossil fuel and nuclear, um, all combined just last year alone. So the rest of the world is massively ramping up investment. Mm -hmm. What we can do, if you speak to uh, the renewable firms investing in Britain, they say that the most important thing that we can do is improve the planning system, is remove some of the barriers that currently mean that it takes them uh, uh, much longer than it should to build the new sources of power. I was up in um, Blythe a few weeks back, mm -hmm. uh, which has been a real phenomenal uh, British success stories just on the on the Northumbrian coast, and there are good jobs being created there in the new offshore wind boom. And speaking to one of the companies there who make some of the huge bits of kit that then you then attach into the North Sea, and they said that look, they could expand tomorrow if the government increased the scale. There's no constraint on their side. The only constraint is the is the demand. So if if government can increase the pace by cutting the um, planning barriers out of the way. Uh, then we've got a chance, at least, of competing with the US, with China, uh, with the EU for some of the jobs that are going to come with this clean energy boom. Speaking of clean energy, one tech that doesn't get mentioned much in this conversation, we always seem to focus on, or politicians especially, focus on wind and solar. But, mm. I mean, nuclear is one of the best mm. no-carbon technologies. Mm. Where are we in terms of... Uh, the kind of modular nuclear that there was quite a lot of excitement about this. I think Rolls Royce mm. are making them. I mean, is that how much is that going to be? Uh, how potent a factor is that going to be in our future energy mix? Do you think? It's, it's it's very exciting. The challenge with nuclear is that it does require quite a significant amount at the start, in the same way that perhaps we did with renewables twenty years ago. But it does require quite a significant amount of government cash at yeah, the get-go. Even for these smaller plants? Even, even, even for the smaller plants, it would. Now, many would say that it's a very good argument to, well, look, what you should do is, is the government should quickly say, right, we will back the first three versions of this, get the cost down to the sort of nth of a kind costs, uh, and, um, and, then you, and then you reap, reap the benefits for it. I think my... Um, my yeah, my, my anxiety would be whether the government at this moment in time, with the physical constraints that they're facing at the moment, would be would be willing to do that. I think that we've got to pull every lever possible, uh, and you know that there is a that we can be energy abundant, energy secure by the end of this decade if we remove some of the planning barriers and get going on nuclear. But that is the slight challenge um, yeah. that new nuclear faces. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It does strike me, just briefly, that one of the, the arguments against nuclear is always, oh, it's very expensive. But part of the reason it's so expensive is that it is so heavily regulated. Mm. That it becomes, it's a kind of a self-fulfilling yeah. argument, if you like. No, that's absolutely right. Um, just, I mean, you worked as a special advisor in Downing Street. Um, we talked about, you know, the need to have policies going into the next election, pro-growth policies and so on. But how difficult is it to translate something from policy sphere into actually getting it done? I mean, how Boris Johnson, mm. I remember, described his difficult various prime ministers have described mm. the difficulties of getting the levers of Whitehall to actually work. I mean, what's your experience there in terms of kind of government? Uh, I think sclerosis is too strong a word, but you know, the difficulty of getting things done in government. Yeah. Um, we have a very centralized system of government. And so a lot of uh, whether a, a policy really gets traction in Whitehall, is then delivered, depends on whether it has the full backing of the centre, so the Prime Minister uh, and, uh, and, and the Chancellor. Um, we were quite fortunate uh, uh, that, you know, Boris really, really got this, got this agenda and so drove through a lot of changes in this 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution um, that did speed up, and in the, and in the energy security strategy, uh, that, that did speed up the, the timeline for deploying uh, new clean power, um, did set new, new targets for, for business to hit that will uh, enable us to, to build a lot more power this decade. Um, but uh, uh, there's a question around some of the proposed changes to environmental impact assessments and and the habitats regs that we're going to need to do in order to hit those targets um, because they were committed to in the energy security strategy and we're yet to to see um, where the government is going to go with that. But as I say, ultimately getting change over the line requires um, a firm commitment from the centre. Yeah, I mean, you talked about um, how your campaign is focused at the moment, especially outside London in other parts of the country. I'm not going to use the phrase Red Wall because it's the most overused thing ever. But what, how important do you think that devolving more power is and, and what form would that take? Because we have kind of mini laboratories of this. You mentioned Ben Houchen in Teesside. You also have 
we have mayors in Manchester and the West Midlands and Bristol and all sorts of places. Do you think enhanced mayoralties is an answer? Do you think county councils should have more power? I mean, how, what does it look like? If we're, if we're going to hand more decision-making powers to local people, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to preempt what we will be saying on, on, on devolution as part of the campaign. But in principle, I think that in, enhanced mayoralties is a very good thing. Um, and uh, I think that... Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a cliche, but we are such a heavily and overly centralised country when compared to similar sized economies, and when compared to France. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, as I say, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to preempt what's to come. No, no, I won't spite to... your guns there. <laughs> but it is very <laughs> striking. I mean, you look at just say taxes, for example, here. At the... The last time I checked, it was 5% of tax was raised locally. Mm. 100 years ago, it was the other way around. It was something like 90% local, 10% central. Mm. Or if you compare it to, you mentioned France, but like Sweden, I think, is 60-40 or really? something like that. Yeah, it's quite strong. Wow. always thought it was very, a very tax-heavy country, but also mm. quite an interesting one from a tax nerd perspective mm. because they very do things quite well, even if... Yeah. They tax highly. But yeah, no, de- devolution, I think, is a whole other podcast worth of, um, <laughs> of stuff. I mean, the big news this week in Whitehall and kind of policy circles has been the creation of all these new departments, mm. one of which is a kind of standalone, kind of interesting named energy security mm. and net zero. I mean, what's your sense on how those kind of machinery changes will work? Do you think they'll make that much difference? I mean, um, I mean, again, at risk of repeating myself, ultimately what really matters is if you've got a prime minister who's willing to drive something through and a chancellor who's willing to put money behind it. Yeah. I mean, I can see the rationale behind the the new structure. Um, some might say it's uh, it's potentially a slightly um, esoteric time to to right, undergo yeah. a, two years before a, an election a, yeah. a, a, a big machinery of government change. Um, but yeah, I'm I have to say I'm pretty skeptical about what changing the name on the door of a government department does. Uh, and I think that really what matters is whether. Yeah, the Prime Minister and the, and the Chancellor are, are full behind the agenda. So apart from planning, what kind of other policies are you guys most kind of keen on? Uh, are there, for example, tax changes you'd like to see or particular regulatory changes? Yeah, I mean, we're very conscious of the fiscal environment that um, exists at the moment. So what we're trying to look at are those policy levers that you can pull that don't require a big new pot of government cash. Um, but that can be good regulatory changes, supply-side reforms that would unlock growth. Um, as I say, the, the particular change that we're focusing on now and that we'll be focusing on for the next few months is around how we speed up more energy and unlock more energy. And that, that particular focus is on changes to the way that we do environmental impact assessments, so bringing them at a more strategic level, um, and potential changes to the way that Habitats, uh, regulation assessments, workers as well. That's our first area of focus for now. Um, but, you know, as we go through the year, there'll definitely be additional focuses on capital allowances, on R&D and all that other good stuff. Yeah, on, your, um, on the Britain Remade website, you mentioned copying kind of the best things that have been done in other countries. Mm. I mean, what sort of things do you have in mind there? Is there anything? Well, one that we saw in Sam, other Sam, mm. Sam Dimitri's piece was Houston's planning regulations, yeah. for example. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So what, what are we talking about here in terms of other, other countries where they do do things better? Well, one very clear example, and it returns to the point around environmental impact assessments, is that the European Union now is looking at introducing these clean energy zones, whereby if you're building new sources of energy within them, of clean energy within them, you don't have to go through the same planning process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that, to me, seems like a pretty good idea, not least as obviously these new sources of power are going to be, as well as cheap, uh, are going to be good for the environment. So it feels like fast-tracking their environmental planning uh, regs would be a a no-brainer. What about, I mean, another thing that a lot of people say is kind of holding Britain back is is our failure to turn research and innovation into something commercial mm. i mean is this something that you guys are, are interested in as well i, mean, I realize you've got a lot on your plate and you're mainly focusing on mm. the stuff you just mentioned mm. but it strikes me there's some quite interesting work being done here we had matt ridley's book a couple of years ago how mm. innovation works it was really um really good read and um, this is something that people bring up over and over again that we're really good at re- universities we have great research but we don't translate it into economic activity it's not something that I uh, that we have yet focused on in the campaign, but it is something, as exactly as you say, that comes up time and again in the roundtables that we're hosting around the country when we're speaking to a lot of uh, innovative businesses. Um, so, yes, it is something that, as we go through the campaign, will probably almost certainly form a, a core part of the offer. Okay, great. Well, Sam, uh, we, we could sit here all day and... Uh chat about the various things that are wrong with Britain but I think we'd be here <laughs> till the cows come home I mean thank you so much for joining us and uh, for just me. for our listeners benefit what is the website and how do they get in touch with you if they want to help remake Britain oh fantastic so the website is www.britainremade.co.uk okay. uh, so yeah you can sign up there to join the campaign all right Sam thanks very much and uh, all of you at home if you are interested in a, I don't know what number industrial revolution we're on now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, a green industrial revolution, a fourth industrial revolution, helping remake Britain, then do get in touch with uh, Sam and Britain Remade. Thanks. And thank you all at home for listening as ever. If you did enjoy what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends by good old-fashioned word of mouth. Do join us next Friday for another episode of the CapEx Podcast. <laughs>